0: Major, my pastor always taught me something. He said, when you give sacrificially to missions, everything else gets taken care of. And, you know, I think, if I remember correctly, this, is, this last year was the largest amount we've ever given to Global Advance, which pays for all our ministries around the world, and Canadian ministries, which pays for mission-type stuff here in Canada. And he always said, God's a missionary-minded God. So I encourage you to just give liberally to missions. And we just trust God will take care of all that. So thank you for that. Let me pray with you for a moment. Father, as we bow and look into your word here in these next moments, I just am very mindful of the fact that just a number of our families have lost loved ones in the last few weeks. And we continue to invite you to just be the God... I believe, of supernatural comfort. And we appreciate the people around us that care for us and bring a meal or pray for us, all good, good stuff. But we just know that when you step into a life, we thank you for your touch. And I pray that you would just continue to release that in our church family, and in particular, I think of the Souter family this morning. So thank you for them. And Lord, as we look into your word now, would you just speak? Just speak as only you can. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God. The first four words of the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. And this is the series title that we're in right now as we're looking through those opening chapters. And in the first week, we looked at the fact that... um, Whatever your worldview is, you have to have some faith. And so to believe that there's a God or to believe there is no God, you have to have faith, absolutely. But in the first chapter of Genesis chapter 1, there's just these very, not only faith, but there's this reasonable belief system that's laid out for us to say, here's why we know there's a God. It's quite reasonable, actually. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, we we looked at how God intended for life to be. The perfectly perfect environment. In chapter 3, we looked at this whole idea of temptation. And how they were tempted, how we're tempted. That God always provides a way of escape. And it's never... he, He never tempts us, the scripture says. But in that chapter... It's, it's just the coolest thing because in the very chapter, when we thumbed our nose at God, when we rebelled against him, and at the heart of that was this idea that I want to be God. I don't want to be answerable to anyone else. And I think so much of what goes on in our world is as a result of that. I do not want to be answerable to anyone else. And in the very chapter when we first rebelled... This is the first time of the promise of Jesus that Christ would come, that he would give his life. Even though it was unwarranted, unearned, undeserved, he said, I'm going to do this for you, even though you did that to me. That's pretty wonderful. This morning, we're continuing in the book of Genesis, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. And I'm going to read those opening 16 verses. You continue when you're at home. You can read the rest of the chapter if you'd like. Genesis chapter 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor, so Cain was angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? So he's sort of saying just just stop here, Cain, take a step back, I haven't, I haven't abandoned you, you know, what's going on here isn't right, yet I can help you, so don't make matters worse, and continue making bad choices, this is always the heart of God, he wants what's best for us, okay, so he says to him, why is your face downcast, if you do what is right, Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I'm warning you, Cain. I can see what's going on. You're heading for a train wreck. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he warns them, just like he warns us over and over again. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, "Let's go out to the field." And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The first murder. Horrible. Then the Lord said to Cain. This is very reminiscent of chapter 3, right? Just like he said to Adam and Eve, "Where are you, guys?" Here's this question, "Where is your brother Abel?" I don't know. Cain replied, and then he's almost a bit sarcastic with God. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you have driven me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. Let me repeat that. I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so if anyone kills Cain. He will suffer vengeance seven times older over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I read this about this Lutheran bishop who suffered terrible persecution for his faith, was tortured for his faith. And when he, when he eventually got out of the prison... Place they put him. He wrote, When God is not God, man is not man. What did he mean by that? When divine authority is rejected, it leads to inhuman actions. And so they've been expelled from the garden, and it's because of their decision, like I said, to disregard. God's clear warning to rebel against him, they have this sin problem, and then I'm going to use a theological term here, we're told that because of that, it's imputed, which means it's put onto our account, this choice that they made is a choice we follow suit with, and it's imputed onto our account. And Adam and Eve start having children, and they have their first two children, Cain and Abel, and as the boys grow older, they develop their own trade, and uh, one becomes a farmer, and one becomes a shepherd, and during the course of time, we don't know what all is going on, but during the course of time, they go and they're going to worship God. And here we're going to see in this passage the kind of worship which Debbie was talking about, which the team was singing and reading about earlier, the kind of worship that's acceptable to God. And this is an important life lesson they're going to give to us almost for free here. Cain brings a grain offering because, as I said, he's a farmer. Abel brings an, an animal offering. And it says in the passage that God looked with favor on Cain's on Abel's, rather, and not on Cain's. Now, why is this? There's a huge debate about this and the different theologians. Some of them say, well, well, it's because uh, one was a blood offering and one was a grain offering. And in some senses, it's a little complicated. But this blood offering is better than, in, than a grain one. And it could be that, but... I personally don't really think so. Some people would say, well, it it seemed to suggest that Abel brings first fruits and maybe Cain didn't. And that's sort of in keeping with Scripture because anywhere in the Scripture, when we're called on to give, God always says, because I'm first in your life, or at least I should be, an illustration of that is when we give, we give to him first before anything else. That's always taught in Scripture without exception. And so maybe that's the possibility of what's going on here. But I lean more towards, when you look at the whole, the whole passage, that the focus is really not on the offering itself, but rather on the response of the heart of the person giving it. The motivation behind why they're doing this act of worship. And we're told all, all through Scripture, again, that before we serve, God wants a worshiper someone who appreciates him for who he is and what he's done and and has that surrendered life. And that when we go to serve, it's out of that and a heart motivation that's dedicated to him. And it's less about the type of offering, but more about the attitude and the motivation and the desire behind it. And this is very consistent with, with so many things we can read in scripture. Let me just read a few of them to you, just to remind you of them. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22, and 23, we see King David and, sorry, King Saul, rather. And King Saul has done something that he's been told not to do. And as the leader, he's led the people far astray. And he realizes what he's done is really wrong, and he tries to bribe God, tries to pay God off. Never a good plan. And we do this sometimes, we do sinful things, we don't want to admit them, we don't want to repent, we don't want to humble ourselves, and we think, well, I'll just pay God off by doing this. So listen to what he says. This is what God says in his word, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because King Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you as king. Then there's David and David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and the Chapter 51 is the classic example of proper repentance. And David is talking in this chapter about the process he went through to repent of of, of the sin of adultery and murder. And he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, God, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, these are things you will not despise. And in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So it's not that he didn't bring offerings, but he got his heart right first. And then he brought the offerings. And this is what God is always looking for. He wants us to bring worship offerings that are first and foremost covered with a humble, obedient heart. And I I referenced this last week, I'm going to reference it again. There's just this pervasive idea throughout Scripture, and this question that's just jumping off the page again, will I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Will I surrender? Is that my first posture? And when I go to serve, this is the posture that should be in my life first. Will I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Just think with me for a minute about those times in your life when you felt distant from God. When you've gone to pray and you, you just, I wonder if he really heard me. Or, or you're, you're just, quite honestly, having difficulty worshiping. Maybe you're in a setting like this, and, and you want to bring a, a, a worship offering, whether it's singing or giving or paying careful attention to God's word and, and saying, I'm, I'm going to let God put that into my life, which is an act of worship in itself, Or I'm going to serve somehow, whatever the case may be. But it just for some reason, it doesn't seem to be happening. And there can be a variety of reasons for these things, but one of them, and I think it's at the heart of this passage, is that our attitude or our lack of obedience or jealousy or whatever it is, is getting in the way. And this might be at the heart of it. Let me read one more passage that illustrates this, and it's from the prophet Isaiah. And During that time in history, the nation of Israel were outwardly, outwardly obedient They were doing the quote-unquote religious things and doing the things they were supposed to do at least outwardly. But as a people and in the way they were running society, it was deeply unjust. And because God is a just God, he doesn't want anything to do with a society that's operating that way. So listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 1, 11 to 15. He says this, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I've had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked you of this, this trampling of my courts? And he's saying, innocent people are being mistreated in their court system. And God doesn't like that. A God of justice. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New Moon Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. So, even again, even though you're doing it right outwardly, in your heart there's evil going on. Your New Moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. They've been murdering innocent people. See, when we're disobedient or our attitude is wrong, God will not even listen to our prayers, let alone accept our worship sacrifice. See, we make choices. Am I going to go the way of Cain or am I going to go the way of Abel? The way of Cain or the way of Abel? And again, I'm not saying that that's the only reason a person might feel distant from God or, or have trouble worshiping or things like that. There can be other reasons, but sometimes this is at the heart of it. And so the invitation here is to, to me, first, and to you as well, is to make a decision to obey Him. To make a decision to say, I'm going to come to Him in worship. And I'm going to set everything else in life aside. And I'm going to say, You're going to be first in my life. And I'm going to honor you for who you are and what you've done. And this sets the table for acceptable offerings of worship to God, whatever those offerings are. And there's these decisions we make. Am I going to go the way of Cain? Or am I going to go the way of Abel? So Cain is angry. And I want you to notice with me, not unlike last week, that there's a progression. And I would call it an informed progression that we're going to take note of in this passage. Just like there was for Adam and Eve. And, and just like for them, um, we come up with our list of, of standard rationalizations of why these things, Things occur in our life. Well, it just happened, or it was just an accident, or I didn't mean for this to happen. But when we look carefully below the surface, which God always does, we actually see an informed series of choices being made. So, just notice with me in the passage how things start to escalate. So first of all, there's this offering. And I would contend from the passage that his heart's not in the right place, his motivations are wrong. And he's angry, he gets rebuked by God, and God says, listen, you know, you're not totally hooped here, okay, I haven't abandoned you, nothing like that, what you did was wrong, but I want to walk you through, because God always has our best intentions in mind, he has our, he has our back, and he's saying, so just, just chill out a little bit here, Cain, uh, and, and let me walk you through But rather than listening, he gets increasingly angry with God, angry at himself, who knows who he's angry at, probably mostly at God. But he knows better than to really say that, so he just kind of makes a little sarcastic jab at God later. But in verses 6 and 7, God warns him, this isn't the end of the world, Cain, you made a wrong choice, and I got to warn you, Cain, you're on the precipice of making another wrong choice. Sin is crouching at your door. Don't do it. I'm here to help you make a different choice this time. But he's angry. And because he can't pick on God, he knows enough not to pick on God, he can't pick on, um, you know, on God, so he's jealous of Abel, and he can't um, sort of be dominant over God or whatever, and so he decides to pick on someone innocent that he can dominate. And this is often the case for us. If we're just really honest, right? We're angry and we'd like to lash out with God, but we know that's not, you know, probably better not say something about God or whatever, but here's someone I can pick on and take out my anger on. And so you know, I, I can't dominate God. I can't dominate my boss maybe at work or the, or the government or whoever it is I'm angry with. And so I'll take my anger out on my coworker, on my sibling, on my spouse, on my kids, whoever the case may be. And hopefully we don't physically murder them like Cain did Abel, but we can be really cruel. And we can say and do some cruel things to innocent people whose fault it's, it's not their fault, the choice I made. Or we, if we know that this hurts them, we give them the silent treatment. So we know that's how we can really kind of poke at them more effectively. Or we let them think that the reason I'm in such a sour mood is because they've done something wrong. But really, it's the choices I've made. And we, of course, come up with the rationalization. Well, that was just the way I was born. I just came out this way, and I can't help it. I don't think so. God certainly doesn't think so. So he says to Cain, make a different choice, Cain. I'll help you make a different choice. Make a different choice. And even though, like Cain, we think we have no options. We talked about this more extensively last week. The scripture says there's always an option. It's never absolutely impossible. And God says in first, we looked at this in 1 Corinthians 10, I will provide a way of escape. I will help you escape. It's not inevitable. Even though we sometimes like to pretend in our mind that it is. So we can justify our choice. And so he's saying to Cain, this is not inevitable. You're angry, you blew it, blah, blah, blah. But let me help you take a different path. And so let me, just, let me just ask you, is there someone innocent in your life that you just need to humble yourself and come clean with and ask for forgiveness from? Because you're choked about something else and you're taking it out on them. So let's just, let's just continue to notice the escalation here. First of all, th- this informed progression. So he has a bad attitude He's angry with God, he's jealous of his brother, he can't pick on God because that's the one he's probably angry with, and so he picks on an innocent person. And then just like in chapter 3, he deflects and he basically lies about the situation and tries to cover it up. And it sounds so much like chapter 3. And when we don't want to hear what God has to say, then anything goes, right? So notice what God does. I find this very interesting Because God does the same thing in chapter 4 that he does in chapter 3. And I think there's incredible wisdom in what God does in both of these chapters. He says, what he does is he confronts their sin initially, somewhat indirectly, by asking a question. And I think this is something that we can use in our life with people and even with ourselves as necessary. And why does he do this? Because it's always God's desire for us to come to a place of repentance. He doesn't want us to be bound by these wrong choices, these sinful choices. He wants us to repent. He wants us to be healed. He wants us to be restored. And so he approaches us more gently, typically, at first. And so he he does it by asking a question. He says... You know, he says to Adam and Eve, where are you guys? Remember we talked about this last week? And it's not that he doesn't know where they are because he's an all-knowing God. He knows exactly where they are. He's asking, what's going on inside you? What's what's happened? And here he said, and, and so then he asks the exact same question. He says, where's your brother Abel? And and he knows what happened to Abel. He knows the fact that Cain murdered him. He knows all these things. But I think he's initially asking this question somewhat indirectly so that he can encourage Cain to own his stuff, to speak out loud what he's done, to think through the horrible thing that he's done, and to admit it, and to humble himself, and say, I didn't listen to you, God. You warned me. Is there ever a time when we make a choice that God hasn't warned us first? I don't think so. You warned me, God. You told me not to, to get all amped up and, and do something I shouldn't do. And I didn't listen. And I was wrong. And, and I did a horrible thing. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie about this. I'm not going to try to cover up where's my brother, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I did it. God's goal in asking this question, I think, is that Cain would repent and be healed and, and forgiven and cleansed and admit what he's done. This is the first step back, the first step back to forgiveness and healing and wholeness. And when someone hurts us, you know, do I want to rant and rave and get my pound of flesh? And, and sometimes in my life, that's my first reaction. Or do I want to see that person restored and back in right fellowship and right relationship? And forgiveness and restoration has this unique beauty to it. Let me read some verses that illustrate this. 1 John, you may have memorized these. 1 John chapter 1, 7 to 7-9, it says, If we walk in the light, in other words, we have a personal relationship with God through Christ, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. God wants us to have a right relationship with him and the people that we're in relationship with as well. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ, in other words, his sacrifice for us, that undeserved, unwarranted sacrifice, the blood of Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, John is saying, listen, we lie to ourselves all the time and say we didn't do it or I didn't sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, speaking of God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's just a beautiful picture. And then in Hebrews 10, it says, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart. Because remember, he's always looking at that motivation. With a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And then finally, in Micah 7, listen to this. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. There's this incredible beauty when sin is acknowledged and cleansed and healed and forgiven. Someone says, "Well, Scott, what if 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 Cain had, you know, because God s- starts indirectly and then he gets very direct afterwards, right? But he starts indirectly. What if Cain had had repented and acknowledged all this right away? Um, what would have happened? Well, there still would have been consequences. So don't think in mean, what I'm saying there there's no consequences. When we make sinful choices, there are consequences. And so even if Cain had repented." There would have been serious, as there should be, consequences. Because as I said, God's a holy and a just God. But here's the cruncher. I'm assuming if he had repented and really owned his stuff, the consequences of the removal of himself from God's presence would not have been involved as well. There's no consequences, consequence as severe as that. And what happened to Cain because he would not repent is a hint, I think a foreshadowing of things. Even as Genesis chapter two, the perfectly perfect environment, is a foreshadowing or a hint of what heaven will be like when we when it's post-judgment seat. And and all of those that have willingly and voluntarily during their life acknowledged their sin the fertility, there's no possibility of dealing with that sin on their own terms, and that they realize that only Jesus could forgive them and cleanse them of those sins, and they receive him as Savior and Lord, and have begun that relationship with him. Subsequent to judgment, we will reign for eternity with Christ. And what we see pictured in the garden is images and overtones of what it will be like. Even though the Bible says it's a new heaven and a new earth, there's and and I think it's gonna be stuff we can't even really imagine because God is so wonderful. But the garden is an image of what it's gonna be like. What we see here with Cain is a hint of what the future exile would be like for the children of Israel. If you read the other chapter, the other books in the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, God warns them as a nation, you're you're going off the rails. If you don't repent and get right, I'm going to bring another nation to punish you because I love you too much to let you to continue in this pattern and you'll be carted off into captivity and into exile and it's going to be horrible. Stop doing what you're doing. I think it's a foreshadowing of this, but it's also a foreshadowing of hell and what hell will be like for everyone who rejects Jesus Christ. Like in verses 11 and 12, there will be physical torment. Hell will be a place of, Scripture is very clear about this, and and some people try to pretend like it isn't because they can't, it's not a palatable thing. It's a difficult thing to say. But hell will be a place of literal physical torment. It will be a place of spiritual and psychological torment as well because People that have chosen to go to hell, and I use those words deliberately, will be removed from the only one who ever perfectly loved them. The only one who offered hope to them over and over again. The only one who was ever always there for them. And they will be all alone, not partying with their friends. They will be all alone, a place of real physical torment spiritual and psychological torment. And this is why Cain says, my punishment is too much for me to bear. My punishment is too much for me to bear. I'm being removed from the presence of God. Wow. There is the way of Cain, and there is the way of Abel. And it reminds me of two brothers that I grew up with. And I'm going to call them uh, John and Bill. It's not their real names. But John and Bill, John was about, he's either two or three years older than me. I can't remember for sure. But Bill, Bill is the same age as me. And uh, John and Bill grew up in a Christian home really good home um, their parents were in ministry. Um, their dad eventually was a pastor and eventually became one of the main leaders of our family of churches in Canada grew up in the same home, both these boys, same parents, you know same food, same school, same church, same youth group just Really the same environment, loved by their parents. And, and I used to spend lots of time in their home, and mom and dad weren't perfect. I saw them do things they probably shouldn't have done, but, uh, you know, join the club. And uh, yet they loved their kids. And John, the oldest, was a very nice guy, really good guy, big guy, taller than me, bigger than me, but less disciplined, less inclined to honor God, Less inclined to respect his parents. And uh, when he would make poor choices, and things started to get kind of fuzzy around the edges of his life. When his parents were reaching out to him and trying to discipline him appropriately and yet still love him, all at the same time, he would keep giving him the straight arm. Bill, from his earliest days, um, loved the Lord. More respectful of his parents. Not that Bill didn't make some bad choices too. He and I made some bad choices together. But he, he was quicker to humble himself. Quicker to repent. Pick quicker to own his stuff. And, re- and be in right relationship with God and his parents. And unfortunately, eventually things got with John to the place that he couldn't have even been in the home anymore. It was just too disruptive. It was too difficult. And from time to time, uh, he would call his parents, sobbing on the phone, you know, destitute. And his parents would try to help him. They do, and sometimes he'd come home, and then he'd start making these really bad choices again, and eventually they'd have to send him off. Bill and I went to school together. We graduated from Campbell Collegiate together, and then we went to get our bachelor's degrees together. Um, he, just like me, he married really well. And eventually Bill became a pastor, and, and I saw him go through some incredible heartache because they got pregnant with their first child, and uh, when they were doing the testing, the tests revealed that there was going to be some severe physical limitations in this child and some of the medical people said, oh, you need to have an abortion and and, uh, Bill and his wife said, no, we won't do that because we don't believe this is a potential human being. We believe this is a human being with potential or something like that. And when the little guy was born, he, he didn't have any outward physical limitations that you could take note of, but within a few weeks he died. And I saw them grieve through that process, uh, cry through that process. And uh, (coughs) Bill and his wife pastor a church out in Toronto area now. They love and they serve Jesus. John kept making poor choices. And God just gave him chance after chance. And he got married and divorced. He lived with a bunch of people And eventually, John died from AIDS. And I don't know what happened between John and God at the end. That's between God and and John. I don't know. But I just know this. There can be the way of Cain in our life, or there can be the way of Abel.